Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this morning, for the seasons of holidays as we begin to really reflect upon what, what it means to look forward to your coming, what it means to live a life full of thankfulness, full of hope. But also, Lord Father, I, I ask you to work on our hearts this morning, that, that, that we may have open hearts, that we may have open minds to what you have to share with us this morning. And so I ask you, if we come in this morning with any stress, with any distractions, that uh, we may put that aside and just listen to your voice this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. You may uh, take your seat. I want to welcome you to Neartown Church. If this is your first time, uh, we welcome you. Uh, We would love to get to know you. If you could fill out a communication card, uh, someone on our staff would love to get to know you, take you out for some coffee or something. Uh, But my name is Giovanni. I want to, uh, first of all, give thanks to Russell for giving me the privilege to teach this morning. Um, And as we're in the season of Thanksgiving almost, and Thanksgiving just passed, uh, I want to give thanks to a couple people. And first and foremost, I want to give thanks to to Russell. Uh, I want to give thanks uh, to my family. They're up here in the first row. Uh, They have done so much for me. They're uh, always there for me. And if it wasn't for my parents, I wouldn't be here on the stage. Who knows where I would be? Uh, I, I thank God for two things, his grace and my, and my parents, because uh, even without my parents, I feel like I would have been able to stray away a little. Uh, but they always kind of tug me back in. And also, um, the last thing that's been on my heart is I want to thank you guys for your cheerful giving. Um, because of your giving, one of the things that uh, I have been able to benefit from is this residency in the past year. And so uh, I've been able to, to learn how to teach, for example. I've been able to serve you guys, serve the community. And I, I just want to thank you guys for your giving. Um, whether you have in mind this is going to go towards the residency or not, uh, it has impacted my life in this past year. And I want to thank you guys for that. Um, and, and as we all know, uh, what's after the day of Thanksgiving in America? Black Friday, that's right. Black Friday to me is one of the most uh, curious holidays America has, and now it's all over the world. I was seeing videos of kind of how the British were reacting to Black Friday this year, and I remember seeing the same videos 10 years ago in America. Uh, Everyone's fighting each other, they're wrestling each other. Uh, And so I asked myself, what's, what's behind Black Friday? Like, why do we get excited about Black Friday. Yes, there's sales, but to be quite honest, there's sales all year round. Um, the, the, the stores are open late night, but there's, you know, early bird specials all year round as well. Um, what gets us excited about Black Friday? Um, and I believe it, it kind of reflects a little bit of our selfish hearts to just get what we want when we want it for the price that we want it for. Um, And and so I believe this causes us to do funny things on Black Friday. Um, You can find videos and you can see pictures of people doing some pretty crazy things that they probably would not be proud of on Black Friday. And so as we reflect on Black Friday on Thanksgiving, I ask you this morning, what's your favorite Christmas memory? As a kid, think about maybe that one gift that just kind of stuck to you that you remember your parents got you, that you remember maybe your aunt or your grandpa or or your grandma got you. And and now I want you to compare that memory of what you used to think Christmas was to what you think Christmas is now. So what's changed maybe? And one of my favorite Christmas stories or Christmas memories that I want to share this morning is when I was a little kid. 
A little bit of background of myself is that I, I grew up in, in a humble home um, where we did not have a surplus of things. Um, and Christmas was either going to be a holiday that I looked forward to or Christmas, Christmas was going to be a holiday that I knew I was going to be disappointed because I wasn't going to get what I wanted that year. And, and I remember exactly one year specifically, I was, ar- I was around six or seven years old, uh, I noticed, and I know my siblings noticed, there was nothing under that Christmas tree that year. And I started to think about it, and I remember we went to church, that, the church we were attending at the time, and maybe it was a Christmas service, I don't know, maybe my parents remember, but uh, I remember driving back home, and I remember my mom telling my dad to pull over and, and stop at a store, and, and I remember just kind of looking around as a kid trying to figure out what's going on, I figured my mom was just running errands, and uh, it was next to a fiesta over in the north side, so I thought maybe hopefully she'll give me some elote, you know, like, that's what's up, like, if you don't give me a gift, give me some elote, you know, like, can I, can I get an amen, Marco? Yeah, you know what elote is, yeah, and so... I was like, if anything, give me that, you know, like, I hope. But little did I know, my mom was just running an errand, but out of her heart and out of, you know, running this errand, and even though we did not have much, I remember my mom walking out with the gift for each of us. And even though we did not have much, my mom went out of her way to buy this dollar gift for each of us. And I remember even to this day, it was just this uh, controller that looked kind of like an Xbox controller nowadays, Maybe you guys remember, but it had a screen in the middle, and you kind of just played like sports. So you could get like a football one, or a baseball one, or a basketball one. It was just black and white. And I remember getting that, and I remember at the time, there was two seconds in me that, was, that were selfish, and I thought, this sucks. This is like the worst gift ever. But what followed after that was the fact that my mom looked into my eyes, gave it to me, and said, I don't have much, but I have this, and I hope you enjoy it. And... Uh, at that moment, I knew she was giving it out of, out of her own heart. She, she went the extra miles. She, we, at the point, we weren't at, at a position to be buying crazy toys or, or buying whatever I wanted. Maybe it was a PlayStation at the time, whatever. We did not have the ability to do that, but my mom went the extra mile to love on me, and, and out of her heart bought me this gift. And, and the way I respond now and the way I responded then was with a grateful heart. And so that's why, I'm sorry, but I get stirred up when I tell that story because... My, my heart is full of gratefulness now. And, and the reason I tell that story is because I want to feel the same way about what Jesus has done for me. And so if I can feel this way about what my mom did for me, and, and, which is such a small act, and yes, it's amazing, I, I, should, be the, I should have that same passion and that same uh, emotional uh, background when I tell the story of what Jesus has done in my life. And I believe we should have that same passion when we talk about this is what Jesus has done and this is actually what Jesus has already done and I know it and I believe it and if I get passionate and I get emotional about it so be it and that's because I was once lost but now I'm found and and that you can't replace that story that's the greatest story and so as we look at Thanksgiving Black Friday and now Christmas you know Christmas is the best story where did where did we go wrong where did it turn a story full of stress and debt, and maybe uh, trying to scurry around time to buy everyone's gifts. Hey, where did it become that? Where did we make that trade? And so, we, and this morning, we're going to look at what it means to worship God fully. And I believe the answer lies within knowing what worship means. And if you're writing notes, write this down. The main idea for this morning is that worshiping God is not a place. It's an attitude of the heart. 
Worship is what we were created for. This is the final and, and end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe. He created us for his glory. And he, and he did it in hopes that we would see his glory, but also reflect it by knowing and loving it with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds. So I believe this morning we need to rebuild a common vision of what worship is. What's it look like? What's it actually mean? Why do we do all this on Sunday mornings? But also, what's it, what's it mean on Monday morning? What is it? Why do we do it? If you guys can put the verses up, verse 8 and 9, I'm going to read real quick again out of our passage this morning. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. So what's this angel trying to tell uh, John? He's trying to tell John, don't worship angels, worship God. Don't worship anything else, worship God. Do, do not neglect God, do not despise God, but worship God. Even to the point of do not worship yourselves, worship God. And maybe for some of us it's, Loving our job, worshiping our job, worshiping our spouse, worshiping our health, our money, our, our politics. But the angel is just simply telling John, worship God. Can you guys repeat that with me? Worship God. So this is the last chapter of the Bible, which I know it's scary. You guys were probably like, Revelation, oh shoot, like, this is about to go down. But this is the last chapter of the Bible, and it's the last duty of man. And that's, that's to worship God. So in the New Testament, we see that we don't really see any, any details of a, of a worship gathering, of a worship service. You know, we see, for example, in Acts chapter 2, that the early church, they attended the temple together. They, bre- they broke bread together in their homes. But there's no corporate gathering for worship. And it's funny because uh, you would think that the epistles would have given us an exact detail of what worship is, what worship should look like inside of a Sunday morning service. And so the most common translation we use for worship in the Old Testament, if you were to translate it, it would mean to bow down. It's a physical worship, to bow down in front of something. And that at the time would have, would have been God, the Holy Spirit, or, or, or the gods themselves that they would build back then. And so this word, this translation to bow down in worship, it's used in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the Revelation, book of Revelation, but it's actually only mentioned once in the epistles of Paul. So so why is that? Why is it that that in the Bible we read that everyone worshipped God by bowing down in the Old Testament, everyone worshipped in the the Gospels because Jesus was, was there in the physical being, they bowed down to him. Same thing in Revelation. He was there in a physical being. They bowed down. But what happens in between? Well, what kind of worship does that look like? Rather than just an outward physical form. We, we see that it actually, this word is to bow down is not used in the letters of Peter, James, or John. So I ask myself again, why is it that these epistles that were written to be the church, what it should be, not talk about this explicit teaching on the specifics of corporate worship. And I think the reason is that it's found in the way Jesus treated worship in his life and his teaching. 
His main statement is found in John chapter 4 with, with the story of the woman in the well. And, and we'll get there. But before we even get there, I want to look at, at even his attitude towards the temple, the main place of Jewish worship. It was not at all what wor- the Jewish leaders at the time thought it should be. In Mark chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, this temple is for personal communion with God in prayer for all the Jews, but also for all the nations. And the main thing he did talking about the temple, he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, he said, something greater than the temple is here. And I love that verse because as soon as I hear that, that's a bold statement. To To go into a culture where everything's about outward forms of worship, outward forms of of letting people know that you're Jewish, he goes in and says, not about this. There's actually something bigger than all of this, and it's me, Jesus. And, he, and he's saying this to say the, the old localization of worship in a temple of the Old Testament is gone. It's now about a personal experience with me at the center, with Jesus at the center. Worship no longer needs a, no longer needs a priesthood. It doesn't need a sacrificial system. It needs Jesus. And so if someone was to ask you, what's the religious mecca of Christianity, what would you say? What would your answer be? It's not Jerusalem, but it's Jesus. It's always only Jesus. You, we don't need a, a temple. We don't need this building in order for Christianity to be lived out in the Midtown or Montrose area. And so now we look at the story of the woman in the well. And real quick, I'm going to read. She's talking to Jesus and she's saying, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. So we can already see Jesus loosening this term of worship. He's taking it from an outward, localized connotation and saying, You know what? Place is not the issue. It's not about whether it's in this mountain or in Jerusalem. And he goes on by saying, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's no longer about locality, it's now about an inward form. So, so he's saying, buildings aren't churches. You guys are the churches now. We are the church. And not that it's wrong for worship to be in a specific place or that it's wrong to use outward forms, but rather he's making it explicit and central that that's not what makes worship worship. The, the music this morning, that's not what makes worship worship. Me preaching this morning is not what makes worship worship. What makes worship worship is what happens in spirit and in truth, with or without a place, and with or without outward forms. So we see that it's in spirit, and what's that mean? Real simply, it means that we're carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it happens deeply inside of our spirits. And in truth, that means it's a response to true views of God, and it's shaped and guided by those same views. So now Jesus has broken the necessary connection between Worship and its outward and localized associations. It's now inward. It's free from locality. This is what he meant when he said, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. When the heart is far from God, worship is vain, worship is empty, and worship is non-existent. It's it's a heart issue. It's not a ritual issue. So what, what are our rituals? For example, the music in the morning, my preaching... The Lord's Supper, the worship band, the the routine of stand, sit down, stand, walk towards the front. Those outward forms are forms of worship, but they're not the essence. They're the clothing of the essence. The experience of the heart is the defining and vital essence of worship. So why don't Peter, James, John, and even Paul use this word of worship to bow down or the outward forms of worship? I believe it's because Jesus came into this world to say, I'm going to turn this thing inside out, this thing about worship. I'm going to make it about heart authenticity. And when it spreads, people can do it in their forms. They can do it in their language. I don't really care. As long as it's a worship coming from, from inside, coming from what the Holy Spirit is already doing inside of them. And Paul actually uses a different word for worship, which, which translates to a type of worship to serve. And when Paul uses this, when it comes to Christian worship, he goes out of his way to make sure that we know he's not talking about a localized association, that he's not talking about an outward form, but rather that he's saying this is a non-localized spiritual experience. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, I serve, or in this case, I worship, I serve God in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel. So as I preach this morning, I do it as worship, as a part of worship, as a means of worship. I'm not following worship time. We're still in worship time right now. My ministry of preaching is an inward experience that becomes outward. So I talk to you out of an inward worship. In Philippians chapter 3, he goes to say, Christians worship God in the spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh. So we see that the Old Testament use of sacrifice and priestly service is now transitioning to a different use in the New Testament. We see that Hebrews says the praise and thanks of the lips is called a sacrifice to God. Paul calls his own ministry a priestly service of worship. He calls the converts themselves an acceptable offering in worship. He calls the money that the churches send him a fragrant aroma to a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice to God. He even goes to the extent in 2 Timothy to say, my own death is a drink offering to God. So what happened to these outward forms of worship in the Old Testament? Why aren't they being referred to by Paul? Why aren't they being referred to by Peter, James, and John? And I believe it's because worship happens in the heart every day and all the time. Worship is now being taken off a ceremony, a season, a place, and forms, and it's being shifted to what's happening in the heart, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day and all the time in our lives. So we see this Old Testament religion of come and see to this New Testament religion of go and tell. Colossians uh, 3.16 says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So we hear that there's no reference to a time, a place, or a service. 
In fact, the key word is always, always giving thanks to the, in the name of Jesus. Always this afternoon, always at small groups, always on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, always at work, always when we go out to the gym, always when we go to bed, always in our marriage, always in our relationship with our, with our kids, with our friends, always giving thanks for all things in the name of Jesus. So the essence of worship, it's not external. And we, we see that now. It's not localized acts, but it's in, inner and Godward experience that comes out not primarily in church services, though they are important, but prim- primarily in daily expressions of our allegiance to God. So what are those expressions? I believe those expressions, for example, are our sex life, the way we handle our money, the way we keep our marriage vows, the, the way we uh, befriend people, the way we keep friendships, the way we speak up for our faith, the way we speak up for Christ. We see that, that Paul did this. He, he lived a mission to magnify Christ, to show that Christ is magnificent, to exalt Christ, and to demonstrate that he is great. So what's worship fully look like? And I have three points. If you listen to anything this morning, I want you to, to hear this. And, and, and this is kind of what's going to help us guide us to, to live a life that's worshiping fully. And, and, and the first one, the first concept is that the pursuit of joy in God is not optional. It's our highest duty. So God is high, mightily honored when he knows that a people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. So our basic attitude on worship and on Sunday morning is not to come with our hands full and give to God, but rather to come with our hands empty to receive from God. And what you receive from God in worship is God himself. It's not entertainment. It's not good songs. It's not a good sermon, maybe a good podcast. It's just God himself. And we should come to him and say, as a deer pants for the flowing springs, so my soul pants for thee. The second concept is that worship has to be radically God-centered. That sounds ironic, but nothing's going to bring satisfaction to us unless we're just going to God himself and nothing else. So we need to realize that, that when we go into worship, we should keep God supreme and central and be persuaded that nothing, not money, not prestige, not leisures, not our families, our jobs, our health, Nothing is going to bring satisfaction to our aching hearts besides God. And I believe this, this conviction breeds of people who go after God hard on Sunday mornings. They go hard after God. They're not confused about why they hear, why they're singing, why they're taking and partaking in the Lord's Supper. They're not uh, confused about why they're receiving the sermon. They do not see them as traditions. They do not see them as duties. They see them as a means of getting to God or God getting to them, which we want because why? God is gain and we want more of his fullness. And the third, third point is that we should just worship to worship. If the essence of worship is satisfaction in God, then worship can't be done authentically as a means to anything else. So we can't come to God and say, I want to be satisfied in you so that I can have something else. That would, that would mean that we're not really satisfied in him, but that's something else. 
That would really dishonor God. That would not be worshiping God. We can't have the attitude of, we worship to teach our children the way of righteousness. We worship to help marriages stay together. We worship to evangelize the lost among us. No, our genuine affections for God are an end in and of themselves. Uh, Husbands can't say to their wives, I feel a strong delight in you so that you will make me a nice meal. Right? That's not what true delight looks like. It does not have a nice meal in view. Or for example, fathers, you can't go to your son or maybe your daughter and say, I love playing ball with you so that you will cut the grass later. If your heart really delights in playing ball with your, with your son or your daughter, that delight cannot be performed as a means of getting something else out of them. Or maybe even as friends, we can't say, I hang out with you. That way, when I'm alone, I have someone to hang out with. Or, uh, I'm here for you. Not, not, not because I'm actually here for you, but I just want to know that you're going to be there for me when I need you. That's not authentic friendship. And so I'm not denying that these authentic worships may, may, may have a hundred good effects on the life of the church. It will, just as true affection in marriage makes everything better. My point is to the degree that it's, it, this might sometimes cease to be authentic worship. Keeping satisfaction in God at the center guides us from this tragedy. So as I close, how, how do we measure whether we're worshiping fully? What's our gauge? What's our indicator? Maybe for some of us, a sign that we're worshiping fully is that we look at our finances less. We don't let that stress us out. Maybe, maybe for some of us, it's we, we give the opportunity to let God work in our lives, work in our hearts, and then give to the church financially. Maybe, maybe for some of us, it's difficult to mourn with others while they're mourning. I know for me specifically, and maybe this is you, but it's hard for me sometimes to celebrate with others, just as hard as it is to mourn with them. So maybe those are signs for us and examples that we're worshiping fully, or maybe we're not. So our spiritual worship is to come to God each day and say, God, there's nothing that I want more than to approve what is most worthy and value what is most valuable and treasure what is most precious, and admire what is most beautiful, but also hate what is most evil. We reckon ourselves dead to all that is unspiritual and worldly and deadening to our souls, and we come to God and say, renew me, O God. Awaken spiritual capacities in the right assessment. And we should come together on Sunday mornings and say, take us, body and soul, and make us the instrument of your glory in the world. Let the renewal you are working from within show on the outside. This is our spiritual worship, God, to show the world that you are our all-satisfying treasure. And there it is. Now we are back at the beginning. The essence of worship is being satisfied in God and cherishing of Christ in game and as game. Bow your heads as I lead us in prayer.